2: Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Joining me this week is token northerner Thea Lenoduzzi. Thea is, of course, also the TLS Voices pronunciation guru and shall be very much put to the test today with our European literary special. Are you ready, Thea?
1: I only do the romance languages.
2: Yeah, so there is German. I'm looking forward (laughs) to seeing you. Are you going to be like me, tongue-tied over the German, or are you going to launch into an impressive... I'll
1: give it my best. You'll give
2: it a go. Well, do listen to see if Thea can tackle the German language as well as she does. There is French, and is that it? Uh, I think we talk a little, yes, but it's just French. We'll just be testing your French otherwise. (laughs) We shall see. Coming up on the show today, we indeed have a festival, a fiesta, a smorgasbord of European literature and ideas, plus more besides, including the new French biography of Claude Lévi-Strauss... Is that okay? Yeah, that was, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, that was pretty good actually. I was about to go. oh, not Levi. It's, a lot of people. Say it's that.
2: Leva Strauss. <laughs> well done by Emmanuel Loyer <laughs> and reviewed by Adam Cooper. Adam will join us to discuss Levi Strauss's place in France's intellectual pantheon and how his ideas have survived the modern age. Also, we shall speak to Joe Paul Kroll about a book called Princeton '66 by George Maginow. Any uh, thoughts there? Hard, hard G, maybe. I Don't know. I don't know come on <laughs> which discusses I told, the, you, I yeah, told which, you I don't know which discusses the German hence Thea's lack of knowledge literary association called Gruppe 47 which <laughs> included such luminaries as Heinrich Ball and Gunter Grass they gathered together in 1966 as they did every year to discuss their work and we'll be talking that's a very not well known little group that and I think it's an interesting piece on it and taking a break from Europe for a moment we'll then cross continents to Africa Laura James has reviewed a series of books looking to explain the problems and possibilities solutions to many african states she will join thea and me finally we shall return to european literature and the poetry of louis aragon tls deputy editor alan jenkins has translated a poem by aragon for us which he will read to close the show so, Claude... Claude. Claude <laughs> Levi-Strauss, who died in 2009, just short of his 101st birthday, is and was regarded as one of France's leading intellectual lights. He was linked to his displeasure as a leading structuralist with fellow members of what was known as the Gang of Four, Lacan, Bart, and Foucault. But he was also very much a man of the world, with large chunks of his life spent studying the indigenous peoples of Brazil or exiled during the Second World War in the urban jungle of New York. He brought to bear the principle of linguistic structuralism, language as a system of oppositions to ethnography, considering the distinctive features that comprise kinship relationships between humans. Adam Cooper has reviewed a splendid new biography of him, which is yet to find a translation into English. He joins Thea and me now. Hi, Adam. Hello. Is it worth starting off with you making the case, as I think the the biography does in your piece in the TLS does, for for Lévi-Strauss as one of France's leading thinkers?
3: Well, I would rank him as one of the most important European thinkers in the general field of the human sciences in the second half of the 20th century. He's a person who really unified two very large fields of um, uh, ethnography or anthropology and linguistics and tried to bring, uh, try to form a, a new paradigm, a new way of thinking about how in different um, cultural traditions, ideas are formed, stories are told in ways that seem very specific, very culturally specific, but which, on a deeper interrogation, turn out to have very universal foundations, just as languages, although very diverse and very difficult to pronounce if you come from a different language background <laughs> thank you thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless clearly rests on some very universal human capacities and uh, ways of forming forming speech so what levi-strauss interrogates what levi-strauss contributes is a way of thinking about the universals which underpin the diversities of languages and cultures.
2: And how and and how do they use structuralism, I suppose, to do that?
3: The very daring idea is there is something in the human mind, in the structure of the brain itself, which underlies all human attempts to convey and and read meanings. And that these are built up through a series of very simple oppositions. So Uh, It's a little bit, some people have said, like um, computer code, which are a series of zeros and ones. So it's a very simple, basic code underlies all the constructions of meaning in language and, and in thought. This means that rather than looking for human, for archetypes or universal ideas, what Lévi-Strauss is looking for are the universal building blocks, and these universal building blocks are a series of, um, of oppositions.
2: But he says, I mean, the, the, you refer to this, as this sort of Cartesian first principle, um, the original cultural rule was the incest taboo. So he did come to a position of a, of a, that starts at least with a universal principle as well.
3: Uh, you could argue, you could reformulate that in, in terms of, of, of an opposition, which is that the basic opposition on which all kinship systems are built is between the marriageable and the non-marriageable.
2: Okay. Uh, and why was that such a breakthrough? Was that never previously fully articulated as clearly as that? Well, it was sort of generally
3: known that all human kinship systems embody quite strict incest taboos, although these might vary. But what Levi-Strauss posits is that this idea, this, this, this opposition between marriageable and marriage and and unmarriageable, is actually the building block which structures all ways of thinking about relatives. And um, so starting from there, the rest builds in a series of of of, of further oppositions, further um, structural structural codings. So what he's found, or what what he thinks he's found, and what a lot of people believe that he did, actually find, is the universal building blocks of all kinship systems. And the universal building block, he says, is this opposition between the marriageable and unmarriageable, the blood kin and the kin by marriage
1: from the life and from your review of the life there's a very clear image of um, Livy Strauss as a man who sort of seems to tread the line between the grand ideas and the kind of down to earthliness um, rummaging around flea markets and and so on. I wonder if his love of the flea market is somehow tells us something about his way of working as well. I mean he he seemed to um, rummage through the work of his predecessors and then take certain bits from um, Marcel Morsu for example and he would then adapt their ideas for his own projects.
3: I think that's that's a very insightful comment here. Yes, one of his recurrent images is uh, what he calls the bricoleur, the do-it-yourself handyman who wants to make something, and so he looks around his backyard or or, or his office and finds bits and pieces of things which he can nail together to make to to, to construct some something new. And this idea of the bricoleur the, is for him an image of the cultural thinker who is not a real philosopher, uh, imagining things from first principles. And the bricoleur is somebody who takes the bits and pieces that are lying around in his workshop. And that's what he does himself. He's, 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 he's very much picking and choosing bits and pieces which fit into the framework that he has in mind.
1: And then, of course, he collected myths, more than 800 myths. So what is it that, that the myths sort of... What, what role do they play in his, in his system?
3: Well... Myths have always been very um, important in um, anthropology and in and, and in classical studies and the European traditions of trying to understand other ways of life, and other civilizations. Um, the idea being that myths somehow encapsulate uh, ideas, philosophies, mor- moralities, and also histories, and so they're a key to to understanding other ways of life. I'm not sure I would agree entirely, but Livy Strauss buys that idea. So for him, myths are a key. Uh, they're a crystallized version of of the whole way of thinking of another civilization. So, myths are very important. Myths are very terribly important, particularly in the study of Native Americans in 19th and 20th century anthropology, and in particular in the work of an anthropologist who very much influenced Lévi Strauss, Franz Boas. And myths are, for him, a way of thinking. They are a way of thinking through fundamental problems about for example, the incest taboo about authority, about the origin of um, of death and life and so on.
2: And how does that differ from notions of archetypes? Because certainly European myths are sometimes considered in those terms.
3: Levi-Strauss very much resists the idea, the, the sort of Jungian idea that all human myths are telling the same sort of story over and over again. That they're. There's the hero myth, there's this myth and the others, and these are widespread because they they conform to some deep uh, human ways of thinking. For Levi-Strauss, it's not the content of the myth, but the way the myth thinks itself through a series of oppositions and and dialectical uh, progression through a series of oppositions, that is universal. So it's the way of thought that's universal, not the
2: content. And you, you talk, and it's probably worth us reflecting on, he had two important trips away from France, didn't he? He went to Sao Paulo, where he he, he looked at the, the indigenous people there. And then uh, in France, obviously, when the Second World War came along as a Jewish man, he needed to get out of France, and uh, he did so just on one of the last boats, it would have presumably proved fatal for him to stay there. And he goes to New York. What are the formative influences of those two places of, of Brazil and America on him, do you think?
3: Yes, I I, I think enormous. An, a number of recent French commentators and uh, his biographer, Emmanuel Loyer, Loyer, makes this point very strongly, it, uh, stress that Lévi-Strauss is one of the few French intellectuals of his generation who is a genuine cosmopolitan figure. And he's one of the very few who is also in touch with new world ideas. And that's quite quite a dramatic break. And, and this, Sir Lévi-Strauss is, in a way, alienated from what's happening in France in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. And he is much more in tune with, um, I suppose you, you could say, a more cosmopolitan... And a more liberal internationalist way of thinking.
2: Just finally, you, there's a great uh, point you make in uh, uh, at the close of your piece, where you know structuralism is a, had a tremendous influence on French life, and you talk about a French national football manager said he was thinking about tactics on structuralist lines, which uh, which slightly boggled my mind when I tried to think of a British <laughs> national football manager trying to do the same thing. But do you feel that Levi Strauss is a is due a revival? His thoughts or, or his his work, because it's striking that this, this uh, book should clearly be translated into English, for example, shouldn't it? Absolutely.
3: Levi Strauss is experiencing a bit of a revival, particularly in France, which to some extent in the United States also because of his association with a, a sort of broad, green philosophy and indigenous people's movement and uh, those sorts of ideas. He's been rediscovered as, as, as an ancestor of, of those ideas. I don't think that's so important. What I think is much more significant is levi Strauss's theoretical development of these ideas about how people think. And those ideas have fallen a little bit into Bands, and I think they're due a revival linked to the new developments in neuroscience, which which are coming to be very important, of course, in the human sciences at the moment. So I think that a new link is due to be made. And will be made at that level.
2: Well, Adam, it's it's a it's a great piece. I'm so glad that the, you know, one of the things we always say about the TLS it's one of the few papers that still reviews books written in their original languages. This should be translated into English, and I'm sure at some point it will. But it's a it's a great privilege that we can we can have you writing about it so well. So thank you very much for that, and thank you for joining us now.
3: Thank you very much indeed.
2: A fascinating guy, and you, you studied. You studied French, didn't you? Is he a big figure? He's a. Is he a big figure in the pantheon? Well,
1: actually, I came to Livy Strauss after I'd studied French. So it was when I was doing my MA because I was looking into food and the First World War, and so I read some Mary Douglas, and it was only through Mary Douglas, you know, the anthropologist, that I then came to Livy Strauss. And I remember reading his mythologies or at least some of them mostly the raw and the cooked and just working my way through page after page of you know these 800 mostly Native American mythologies about leopards and foxes and bits of pottery and and stuff and just feeling like i didn't quite know what was going on did it feel Um, like
2: it was i mean i don't use the term archetypal did it feel like it was universal that the things that you were looking at
1: well what you do find is that you read so many of them and and it's it's like adam says in his piece you you can read them in multiple ways but the overall effect it's quite hypnotic so you start to see these sympathies and and something something happens i can't really say (laughs) say what it is but it's it's quite hypnotic and you read them vertically and horizontally and
2: yeah, I think Whatever. when you start thinking of... Stru- I mean, I don't, as you know, my antipathy towards critical theory, but I, once you start thinking of things in structuralist terms, in opposition, that's very easy to fall into, that, you know, man versus woman, man yeah. versus God, man well, versus that's animal, that in, sort of thing. That's
1: sort of what's so compelling about Livy Strauss is that you've got these oppositions that you can't really refute. You know, you've got... Uh, Tender versus tough, and moist versus versus parched, raw versus cooked, all of that sort of thing, and those are the way they mean. Subconsciously, those those things factor in. You're making a decision that then falls anywhere between those two oppositions. Yeah. So it totally does, you know, make sense um, and underlies everything. It's quite kind of can make you quite anxious if you think, well, that's all it is. That's it. Yeah. That's, is, it. That's, that's
2: sorted now. But in some ways, life is like a very yeah. binary. You know, to people, the binary code is just ones and zeros. You can simplify things down to to, to basic oppositions. Uh, it's interesting. Stuff. It's a really good piece, and it should be translated. It seems extraordinary that it's not. Well, I'm there.
1: sure someone, someone's listening who can, who can make
2: that happen. Yeah, get it translated. <laughs> we shall stay in the realm of mid-20th century ideas. This time from Germany, Gruppe 47 was an association, a group, in my free translation of that word, of some of the most eminent writers in Germany. It included Heinrich Böll, Gunter Grass, and others such as Martin Volzer and Peter Weiss, named after the year of its first meeting. This group existed really only in the form of the meetings that took place, organised organized by Hans-Werner Richter. In a rather steely Germanic fashion, the group was not held together by a philosophy, but by a set of procedural rules for the meetings. Authors had to read their work aloud to the group from what was called the electric chair, and discussions were not allowed to stray from the work at hand, which would then be considered in terms of its form and language." In 1966, they were invited to Princeton in the United States of America. And the trip is the subject of a book by Georg Maganau, reviewed in this week's TLS by Joe Paul Kroll, who joins Thea and me now. Hi, Joe. Hi, Stig. Hi, Thea. Good Hi, to Joe. be on the podcast. It's very good to hear from you. Um, this is such an interesting group and event that I wasn't really very familiar with at all. Uh, perhaps you might start by, what are the origins of this group and what seems to me to be sort of rather austere rules for them?
0: Well, Stig, uh, you already made a good point uh, in reminding us that the group as such, uh, well, wasn't so much a group as a series of meetings, and its members were probably more accurately referred to as participants in these meetings that were called once or twice a year by um, Hans-Werner Richter. Now, Richter himself was a writer whose own literary ambitions were modest, and uh, I think he uh, realized that early on and devoted himself to becoming you know, the preeminent impresario, as it were, of uh, post-war German literature. The visit to the United States, in a sense, is a return to the origins of uh, Gruppe 47, or 47, if you uh, prefer. Its origins lying in a journal called Der Ruf, the the Call, which was founded in a prisoner of war camp in America um, in, I think, 1943 by uh, Richter and uh, another, um, another writer, perhaps more famous in his own right, Alfred Anders. And uh, they continued publishing this journal in uh, Germany after the war and uh, did so quite successfully, reached a Peak circulation of uh, I think 70,000, and um, continue to be funded by uh, the United States, and uh, well, in uh, as part of a re-education program for Germany. And uh, Richter and Anders invited writers to uh, editorial meetings of uh, Der Hof and established this procedure whereby uh, writers would read from their work and uh, other writers gathered would respond. And as you, you said in your introduction, they would respond only to the um, to the text at hand, they wouldn't try to make any general points about literature, politics, or anything. It's supposed to be a scrupulous discussion of the text itself. That principle was then carried over um, into Corpushumanfietzig when um, when Richter left Der Ruf and, uh, well, as it were, struck out on his own.
1: It sounds it sounds a, a little bit like I mean, f- for us, the temptation is to compare it to the Bloomsbury Group, but a lot a lot less fun and. Is it fair to say, in, in the short and long term, less, less successful in, in terms of legacy, or...?
0: It depends on how you define success, um, and the Bloomsbury Group is an obvious comparison, and uh, my impression is that the Bloomsbury Group was held together more by, well, bonds of mutual sympathy, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, a sort of genuine mutual interest, whereas Kopstein and Tvierzig was very much centred around Richter himself, Participation in meetings was by invitation only. He would send out postcards to writers uh, in his good books, whom he deemed worthy of uh, invitation at any particular moment in any particular year. And critics say it was more than a, more than association for mutual flattery, or, or less mm. kindly, even the sort of mutual concealment of mediocrity. Although that's probably a bit harsh.
1: And so, so why did it why did it unravel?
0: Well, there are several theories. Partly, I suppose, that younger writers such as Peter Hanke, whom I mention in the text. Uh, had other ideas, uh, weren't really satisfied with the kind of literature that uh, their colleagues were producing. Another theory which was advanced, I think, by uh, Walter Jens, uh, a critic and a scholar associated with the group, was that Corpus um, was, Unitschietzig was specific to the early years of the federal Republic of Germany, and once West Germany uh, had sort of reached its its maturity, it didn't need a group of writers to give it, as it were, spiritual direction, but uh, the atmosphere changed, I suppose, in the late 60s from, you know, a concern with, um, you know, the the kind of spiritual reconstruction of Germany, which was a big topic, not only in Germany, but especially in in, in the 1950s. But the struggle became more overtly political. You, you You have the Vietnam War, you have the student movement, and... Um although Gruppe 47 consisted of you know self professed leftists, Richter in particular was sort of uncertain how to deal with these tendencies as a group.
2: well you talk, you mentioned Hankett there and uh, and you say that he makes the the most memorable literary statement that's made in this meeting at Princeton and the one to which the meeting owes much of its fame was by him, and it was critical of the german current literary tradition wasn't it? He was saying that it it, it was an uncreative period in german literature
0: yes the the an interesting thing to note about that is that um hanke's actual literary statement um was a sort of a crime novel or, or an excerpt from a crime novel that was not as memorable as his uh, comment on another work that was uh, presented, a uh, text by Haman Peter Peebitt, uh, a writer who isn't much uh, read or remembered these days. But Hanke used that more as a springboard to launch, as he said, a, a general attack on the literature of his times. Um, he used this, a wonderful German compound word Beschreibungsimpotenz, uh, impotency of uh, description, and uh, impotence kind of uh, hurt pretty badly in what was uh, essentially a boys club at the time, and the gender politics of the group, uh, are another aspect that uh, one might devote some attention to, but he also used words like uh, cheap, uh, uncreative, as you said, feeble. There was a sense on Hanke's part that his colleagues weren't really using language to its fullest, were, yes, not um, not really addressing phenomena in the, the... Millions
4: of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Salads, generally for most people, are the easy button, right? Okay the terms really appropriate to them.
2: And that lingered, didn't it? I mean, and and that, that, that's one of the legacies of it, that, that formed the basis for, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, reaction against that notion of what German literature could achieve.
0: Right. Um, the thing about Gruppe 47 is that in its beginnings, it uh, really tried to reintroduce modernism to German literature. If you imagine the situation after the Second World War, after the Nazi era, modernism had been pretty much completely suppressed. And then after the war you have a reaction in the form of so-called rubble literature which is sort of very stark uh, influenced by American short stories and existentialism and uh, a writer like Byrd's early work actually belongs to that period but then you have a a return to modernism um, slightly awkward language you know trying to sort of break up the the flow of narratives but uh, a certain resistance to experimentation that goes beyond that but by the, the late 60s the group had hit something of a rut and had also established itself as the dominant force but also as arbiters of taste in German literature and a lot of younger writers uh, including Hanke who's definitely among the youngest uh, participants began to see it as something of a gerontocracy.
2: Uh, Joe I've not heard very much about this uh, uh, group but it's 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 a very striking uh, piece. It sounds like a very interesting book, focusing on this one moment that says something rather significant about German literary culture in the post-war years.
0: Uh, it is. And and the meeting in Princeton is definitely a moment when this development came to a head. And Hanke's inter- intervention was seen as a coup de grace, putting the, the group out of its misery, um, as it were. But... Um, it also cemented uh, the group status as the official representatives of uh, German literature in America and uh, As such, it has uh, retained a certain sort of mystique. And you can actually uh, listen to the recordings of a lot of the um, readings on the Princeton University website if you look for them. I mean, uh, they are in German, but there's also some quite informative uh, textual material to read.
2: Oh, Lovely. Joe, thank you so much uh, for the piece, and thank you for joining us now. You're welcome, it's been a pleasure. I wonder you mentioned Bloomsbury. Here's a question for you. Is it ever profitable for authors to get together or actually is writing just a solitary act that people should just get on and do rather than sit in a room and and
1: talk about? Well, it depends on whether you mean, I suppose... What what you what you mean in terms of what would you be getting out of it? Well, Do you mean like a uh, joint a joint
2: work? Or? No, I mean sort of movement. I'm sort of suspicious maybe of movement, but maybe maybe Bloomsbury was a sort of place which fostered great creativity.
1: Well, yes, and then you think of the Ulipo movement as well.
2: Yeah,
1: and uh, and that gave us George Perec and Italo Calvino and yeah. people who we still read. And I suppose in a sense, if you're giving in that in that instance, if you're giving, um, if you're setting these constraints something comes out of that and also you're you're bringing rivals together and that you know rivalry is a healthy thing and that can push people on more didn't, and then really you think feel,
2: of didn't feel like that for this does it when, when, no when, this when, felt
1: slightly different <laughs> it, it did <laughs> it does feel slightly different slightly
2: cruel and slightly sterile is uh, it's a really interesting piece but the, the notion of the group didn't feel like a yeah really sort of warm place of where a movement can develop it felt more like sort of a, a place where Literature was defined and argued. In.
1: Yeah, and I think the internal politics of the group are possibly the most interesting aspect of it. <laughs> in, in in you hear about in Joe's piece, you, you can read about you know Gunter Grass um, and his uh, animosity towards because obviously you had in this same group you had people who had fled the war and people yep. who had stayed and fought for and had, Germany and you had
2: Jewish, I mean, yes, uh, you had Jewish Peter exiles Weiss a Jewish and, exile and, and,
1: exactly, and um, Peter Hanker, I think he was austrian so i wonder if 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 i think he was possibly the only austrian member or one of the few so you wonder if that informed his um his rant yeah. so to speak you know this this poor Austrian being kind of suffocated by, by the big Germans in his in this group.
2: I it's a know. very it's a very striking meeting. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want to be a fly on a wall for it, but it's uh, <laughs> it's interesting to talk about it now. Let's move on from Europe for a little bit. We're going to turn our attention to Africa. Uh, Laura James has reviewed a series of books, perhaps most notably Alex Duval's The Real Politics of the Horn of Africa, all of which seek to comprehend the ongoing human tragedy that seems to be the inescapable fate of much of the continent. One issue that emerges is the role of Western countries in either a Assisting or complicating the political, social, and economic development of many African countries. And one conclusion to draw from Laura's fascinating piece is that solutions to the problems that can be readily identified can't be readily found. And that may be the ongoing tragedy of Africa. Laura is with us now. Hi, Laura.
4: Hello.
2: Let's start with Deval. Is his contention that foreign intervention is in the form of aid or investment actually prevents the organic development of, of, of states in Africa?
4: I think that's part of what he's saying. His central point is to is to build this model of the political marketplace, which essentially looks at the idea that as money comes in from any source, um, and that's not just aid, but also normal trading money or smuggling or patronage money from another source, all of that money can be used to build up structures that are anti-development, that create a sort of an alternative marketplace to the state. And so the state isn't able to control what's going on because these informal structures become bloated by finance, become too powerful.
2: What are these structures? Because uh, it it sort of cuts across national boundaries, does it?
4: So there's a political marketplace that is in some ways almost indistinguishable from the state, but it's personalised. So the people who are the political entrepreneurs who try and get money from somewhere above and pass it on to the people below them and try and maximize the number of people below them by maximizing the money coming from above them, those people can be government officials, but they're not completely doing what they do in a government capacity. The money isn't going through government channels. Equally, they can be criminals, um, people who are part of smuggling rings or people smugglers when you come to the um, refugee problem, or they can be a whole range of different sorts of people.
2: And so at, at its baldest is the theory that if foreign money corrupts, is one answer to withdraw it or, or massively reduce its influx?
4: Um, so he talks about maybe taking the money out of international politics. He also talks about how to reward civility and integrity in politics which again are good aims but there is a question left here of how you actually do that and I don't think taking the money out necessarily helps. There is a huge need um, for aid assistance in in parts of Africa. Um, There's a need for development assistance and even if you took all of that out actually the money that's coming in from trade and from oil rents and from diamond sales for different countries dwarfs it and that is the money that, that is driving these networks just as much if not more.
2: But a theory, I guess, exists, and I, um, I remember, I think Paul Thru used to say this 10, 15 years ago, that um, ultimately a country can't stand on its own feet or a nation state can't develop itself if it's always having um, external either aid or investment. It needs to build itself up from within. But I suppose in a, in a globalised environment that we now live in, that's an impossibility anyway. You can't remove foreign investment or aid from an entire continent or part of a continent because that's not how the world works anymore.
4: It's a tragedy for Africa and for some other countries across the world developing in a globalized world and you can't turn back that clock but development becomes much more difficult and so that's this theory of of extroversion that countries um, and as I say this has been discussed for for at least 20 years if not more that countries have to turn outwards uh, just in the world that they're living in,
1: and is there is there some slight optimism to be to be found in any of the in, in any of these books? You mentioned one, the volume edited by Pamela Allen and, and Chester Crocker. Yeah. Um, there's some talk of bridging gaps. Do any of them stand? Or
4: so the book um, Minding the Gap is sort of structurally designed to say what can the international community do, not whether it can do anything. So in that sense, it's sort of structurally optimistic. Um, And the contributions and the specific chapters do highlight more of the problems than than the introductory sections. But on the other hand, they also do point out that sometimes uh, there have been cases where international assistance has helped with processes. Emphasis here is on... Uh, African and on local ownership of those
2: processes. Um, one of the things that, that I think is fascinating about your piece is you review a novel in these mm-hmm. books, which is quite rare when, you, when you're looking at things like the issue of Africa. You review a novel, Borderlines, by Michaela Wrong, who's a journalist, that takes as its subject, that it's a territorial dispute between fictionalised African countries. Do you think fiction takes you any further uh, than, than the other books you review, which are either collections of essays or, or, or monographs on, on the problems of Africa? I think
4: the fiction does two things. One is it shows the problem in a very vivid way. So um, some of the quotes, I think, from Michaela Wrong's book, and she is also a good analyst. We shouldn't talk about the problem of Africa. There are many African countries that are doing extremely well um, in different respects. And although they have problems, they are problems in common with countries and other continents. But we're talking here about a specific set of African countries that can't seem to get out of it an aid dependence trap she just makes that very vivid um she shows that that it's a real problem it's imminent that people in africa feel it she gives if you like some of the african perspective in a way that people can understand whereas there are certain african authors in in the other edited volumes but um they're speaking academic ease
1: Mm -hmm. uh, whereas wrong gives ordinary people a voice but you do say, I mean, it's a thinly fictionalised account, and that there are strong <laughs> yeah. similarities with Eritrea, Eritrea, the work that she's written, that she's done on, on Eritrea. So, why do you, why do you think she chooses to create a fictional African country? Because, I mean, the the, the worry is is that that somehow reinforces a tendency to to generalise about Africa, to sort of blur all the nations together, and and to think, therefore, that there is one key to fixing all of Africa.
4: I think there's a risk of that. Um in pretty much all of the books that have been written on Africa uh, or that people try to generalize about, she was writing about some things that are quite close to reality in some cases. And perhaps she wanted to to distance herself enough that individuals might not feel feel themselves to be identified. I think the book is much more interesting and readable if you go in thinking, okay, this is about Eritrea. Um, This is about a specific place, actually, Mm. and a specific problem. And it's really vivid and we can look at it in a more kind of immediate way.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that's uh, the result of all these books and, and your review, because I, you know, it's, not, it's a problem that's not going away. And even as we talk about it now, of course, we generalise this is the problem of Africa. And it's and yes. in some ways that contributes to it feeling even more in, intractable, doesn't it? Because it, it feels like we're saying this is an entire continent's problem when it's mo- it's yes. more complicated than that.
4: And it's not really, it's actually not a cultural problem. For one thing, it's not just one problem. There are lots of reasons why aid doesn't work in Africa and elsewhere. The particular one that we're talking about here that Alex De Waal identifies and has some resonance with a lot of other books that have been written on, on Africa and elsewhere, it's a structural problem, not a cultural problem. It's the problem of money coming in without accountability, of local organisations being accountable above um, and often above in a cross-border way, rather than being accountable to the people below them.
2: How interesting. Laura, thank you so much for joining us uh, uh, today and thank you very much for the piece as well.
4: It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank, Thanks, you. thank Laura, you, Laura. Bye.
2: This also links into the refugee problem, which we didn't have time to, to go into, but you know, from the Middle East and Africa, we may be seeing one of the great global migration movements and it's very hard to see how that's going to change in the next 20 years. As, as Africa becomes more closely connected to everything, it becomes more closely connected to other countries and therefore there'll be more movement within, between people and, and whether there's a political will for that to happen I think is a very open question That is almost all we have time for this week Before we talk to Alan Jenkins who's just sitting down now and listen to his translation of a poem by Aragon, I'd like to thank our guests Adam Cooper, Joe Crawl, and Laura James Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts We'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects.
1: If you If you do get your podcasts on iTunes you can You can review us as well. And we'd We'd like like to be be reviewed. We'd like to be reviewed.
2: The reviewer becomes the reviewee.
1: Yes, exactly. It'd be nice to know if we're we're doing the right thing or not.
2: (laughs) Actually, only good reviews we'd like. (laughs) Only good reviews, please. Um, This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we've discussed today, plus Ian Sansom with a very funny prodding of the unseemly maunderings of Alan Bennett, Peter Hainsworth on the latest thinking about Dante, Oliver Noble Wood on some quixotic claims about Cervantes, a thunder on why Germany rejected her book stasi and Peter Thoneman gently tearing apart a reissued classical history by Edward Lutvac. You can visit our website the-tls.co.uk to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions, and do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers. This week we've asked Peter Hainsworth to exercise his Dante scholarship on the latest Dan Brown movie, Inferno. William Boyd has answered 20 questions putting the boot into fitzgerald fanny price and derrida and diana dark tells us how culture is surviving in syria sign up for our weekly newsletter there and make sure you follow us on twitter like us on facebook etc etc uh, we're going to finish with a poem by Louis Aragon. We published this week a review of a biography of Aragon by Philippe Forrest, which tells a tale of a man who, in the words of his biographer, remains for many a permanent and embarrassing enigma. A pioneering surrealist and an ardent Stalinist, Aragon was refused a state funeral by President Mitterrand when he died in 1982. Alan Jenkins has translated one of Aragon's poems for the paper this week, which he will shortly read for us, but first we want to talk very briefly about him. Alan, how do you think Posterity and the modern world should regard
5: Aragon probably as one of the great love poets of the twentieth century, and actually as a sort of re- as a realist novelist. He began as a surreal as a surrealist poet and a Dadaist, um, but under the influence of Elsa Triolet, uh, the woman he met in the late nineteen twenties, who was Jewish, Russian, and a very ardent communist. He became a communist too and became very committed to the French Communist Party and under, as I say, the influence of Elsa and of communism, he began to write socialist realism, really. The war really made him, the Second World War. He was decorated for gallantry, in fact, in both wars. Uh, He was in the medical corps. And I don't think there are many French poets who were decorated gallantry in both world mm-hmm. wars. Uh, he was a very brave man, and he was extremely active in the resistance in the Second World War. He, he and Elsa went into the unoccupied zone in the south of France. They lived in Nice for most of the war, but they made many trips to Paris. And it was mainly um, Aragon's organisational abilities that came to the fore in this time. He was a very, very much a leading light in the intellectual resistance, uh, organizing networks of writers, uh, exchanging information, organizing clandestine publication, and so forth. So it it, it was both as a sort of resistance, as a a resistance fighter, an intellectual resistance fighter, and as a love poet, because also at this time he began to sort of write some of the really some of the most some of the strongest and most moving love poetry of the century about Elsa, and in. in, At such a time, what he, he recognised that France needed a, a symbol in a way, and he turns her not just into a he, she's not just a muse in the, in in his love poetry, but a symbol really of everything that the French stood to lose, uh, love, domestic happiness, joys, the joys of, of of the home and hearth, if you like, but also of sexuality, obviously of sensuality. So she becomes a kind of tremendous symbol of freedom and of, and of the p- potential for the French, again, to kind of start enjoying life during during the miserable and terrible and hellish period of the occupation and the Second World War.
2: And do you think he's... You don't necessarily get that sense of a figure to be celebrated, because she, there is this suspicion around him because of the Stalinism. Do you think he's unfairly treated as a result of that, that political position well, he got yeah, into? No,
5: undoubtedly he was quite a slavish Stalinist. And that's the problem. He was sort of completely unrepentant and unreconstructed long after the kind of... Uh, he, you know the, the the discoveries of the 1950s and 60s. He he refused really to to repent and recant any of that Stalinism. So I think that that has has given him a very very difficult time indeed in France and in intellectual circles. Is he easy to translate? No one's easy to translate. <laughs> um, but he did during the war, as I say, he 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 wrote two two really extraordinary books or published two extraordinary books, um, both very much putting Elsa Triolet at the centre. Um, of his universe, one was called Le Crève-Cœur, the other Les Yeux d'Alsace. And as I said, he he elevated her in these books into this wonderful symbol. I mean, she's a very intimate presence in the books, um, but she's also a symbol, as I say, of, of everything that, that the occupation stood to deprive French people of, um, and that he he's trying to kind of set establish her as as a symbol of beauty and freedom. So. Um, Easy to translate, no, but he did adapt in in these poems some very, very, very simple forms, ballad forms and song forms. So in that sense, um, he he became a much less sort of wild and extravagant poet than he'd been in his surrealist period. And he, he relies much more on quite sort of simple, often formulaic, um, phrasing a lot of repetition, a lot of sort of rhythmic, uh, almost incantatory sort of rhythmic effects, which lend themselves very much to uh, to speech, to to sp- to being spoken out loud and to being remembered. I think he probably wanted his poetry to be spoken and remembered. He could carry it around in their heads. they didn't they didn't necessarily want to be caught with a book of his poems, but it was but I mean, there was a sort of semi clandestine aspect to it. So these kind of very easily memorable effects become very important in his poetry. because
2: yours is a beautiful. Translation. I've not read the original, but it's a beautiful poem that you're about to read now, but I don't know what you think This theory. When you read the piece, and I, had, I read the piece before I read the poem, I was expecting a much different poem to the one that uh, we end up printing in the paper, because I think you, you read him as this sort of surrealist, Stalinist, and which sort of has a very hard edge in your mind. And then you, I don't know what you made of the poem, when you, when, you hit, when, you, when you see the poem that Alan's translated, it's, it's, it's beautiful.
1: But it is set out in the piece that when once he met Elsa, there was this return to kind of earlier forms, yes. and it's almost as though she might have provoked that somehow. This this return to the the, the more balladic forms, yeah. and, and, and there's the repetition and the rhythm and the sort of almost like chanting quality to it, which you certainly get in your in your translation. Oh, so, right. well,
5: I hope so. That's yeah. great. Thanks. Well, I was, he he surrealism and dadaism were forms of rebellion and revolt. They were they were artistic rebellion. They were artistic revolt. By the time the war had had happened you know france was living under the uh, under german occupation and paris especially was sort of feeling the weight of the german occupation he wanted to reach people, he wasn't in rebellion against a, a bourgeois society or bourgeois artistic conventions. He wanted to reach people. He, he, the whole of France was in rebellion against the German occupation and he against against a, the war.
1: He wanted to remind them what they were losing, a, and, and that goes for the literature and the style as well.
5: Absolutely right, and and the style really goes hand in hand with this. As I said it's it's a very aural and a very verbal style. It's a style to sort of, once you've heard, it's quite hard to get it out of your ear or get it out of your mind. And my feeling is that he probably wanted people to sort of repeat his poems and say them. Um, Even if they didn't have the text, they would sort of hand them on, as it were. Um, It it lends itself to that, certainly, mm. I think.
2: Well, let's hear it. I mean, so here it's going to be, to end the show, Alan Jenkins reading his own very, very wonderful translation of Elsa at the Mirror by Louis Aragon. So please do uh, listen to that. And until next week, from Theory and Me, it's Goodbye.
5: over to you. If you can bear in mind that everything I've said applies to his French, and I've no idea to what extent it (laughs) applies to my English, but here goes. This is a translation of Elsa au miroir, Elsa at the Mirror. It was right in the middle of our tragedy, and she sat at her mirror for the longest of days. She brushed her golden hair. I seemed to see her patient hands subdue a blaze. It was right in the middle of our tragedy. She sat at her mirror for the longest of days, she brushed her golden hair and it seemed to be, it was right in the middle of our tragedy, a harp she was playing, her heart not in that melody, as she sat at her mirror all that longest of days. She brushed her golden hair and I'd have said she was torturing for the hell of it her memory as she sat at her mirror all that longest of days, and rekindled the never-ending flowers of the blaze, without saying what another woman in her place would have said. She was torturing her memory for the hell of it, right in the middle of our tragedy. The world looked like that accursed mirror. The brush parted flames of watered silk, and those flames lit up corners of my memory. It was right in the middle of our tragedy, as Thursday sits among the days— And for one long day, seated before her memory, she saw in the distance, dying in her mirror, one by one the actors in our tragedy, who are the best in this accursed world. And without my having said them, you know their names, and what they mean, the flames of the long evenings, flames of her golden hair, when she sits, and without a word, she brushes the reflection of a blaze.